Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Guardian. Greensill is the lobbying scandal that just won't go away, and the Conservatives aren't quite sure how to deal with it. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. It's an issue that exposes the far too cosy relationship between politics, government, business and money. I'm talking about lobbying, and we all know how it works. Indeed, it seems the former Prime Minister David Cameron certainly knows how lobbying works. For the last month, Journalists like myself have attempted to reach Cameron to hear his response to revelations that he sent texts and emails to ministers on behalf of Lex Greensill, a financier whose business went bust recently. He finally made a statement at the weekend saying he didn't break any rules, but he has learned some important lessons. Issue sorted, right? Not quite. On Monday, Boris Johnson bowed to pressure to order an independent inquiry. Labour says it's not good enough. On Tuesday we found out that one of Britain's most senior civil servants began working as an advisor to the finance firm while still serving in Whitehall with the approval of the Cabinet Office. How will the government get through this mess? And as violence dissipates from the streets of Northern Ireland, my colleague Rory Carroll speaks to the Justice Minister and head of the Alliance Party, Naomi Long, about the future for the state steeped in historical tension. Meanwhile, Labour and Conservative MPs have been flocking to Hartlepool recently in the run-up to a very important by-election in May. Can Starmer overcome his first hurdle at the ballot box, or might the Conservatives succeed in flipping the town blue? Aubrey Allegretti takes a look later on. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first... The current Prime Minister shocked many of his own MPs by announcing an inquiry into David Cameron over his lobbying on behalf of Greensill Capital. Some are questioning the motives and the scope of such an inquiry. To talk about this and much more, I'm joined by Guardian Associate Editor and Columnist Martin Kettle. Martin, let's look first at this Greensill story that seems to be getting murky by the day. We learned yesterday that official approval was given for Bill Crothers to begin advising Greensill in September 2015 while still employed in the civil service. And, you know, we found yesterday, our, our investigation found that Crothers, you know, as he went on to become a director of Greensill, he got shareholding potentially $8 million. I mean, obviously he says that he completely abided by the rules, that everything that he did was approved. And, and, and the fact that it was approved and was within the rules is almost what makes it more astonishing, isn't it? 
I think it's a remarkably serious story now. Um, and I think that the fact that he was still in the civil service when he was working for Greensill is quite jaw-dropping. I mean, it just feels like it's, you know, you're working for two masters, um, you know, when you should only be working for one, which is the, you know, the electorate through the civil service. And I think, you know, that that just is a really, really bad look. And more than that, it has great potential for uh, self-enrichment and, uh, and, and, and wheeler dealing. I'm not saying he did any of that, but I mean, as long as you have governments which think that people in the private sector are better guardians of public interests than people in the public sector uh, who are governed by strict rules, uh, these dangers are going to occur. And clearly that's what's happening now. And I think it's getting more serious and more murky. Yeah, and, and he, obviously in his, he writes in a letter to ACOBA, which is, is the watchdog that looks at the appointments of ex-ministers and ex-senior civil servants, that he didn't declare the role to them because he was already working for them, so therefore he wasn't an ex-civil servant, he was a current civil servant. And that he says one of the, you know, you know Downing Street's jaw, they say, was already dropped by reading this letter, but then it, it sort of fell even further to the floor when it's, he said, you know, it wasn't uncommon for this to happen. Clearly, we need to know how much of it there is and how far it goes back. Uh, I mean, it's now 25 years since the Nolan Committee reported and produced its pretty strict and uh, rather and very admirable uh, rules for uh, people in, pub in public office. And I, th I think just the memory has slipped and the, the institutional memory has slipped. We, you see this in institutions all over the place that... Uh, you know, people need keeping up to the mark. And that it feels as if that just is not happening anymore. And it's uh, it's a very disturbing thing. Perhaps we could talk a tiny bit about what it, what it tells us a bit about the culture in that Cameron administration, which was private sector expertise is what the civil service needs. I mean, I think we, we, we dug up this morning, uh, even a press release announcing Crothers's new role transitioning back into the private sector, you know, with glowing quotes from... John Manzoni, who was the, the chief of the cabinet office then, the civil service chief of it, and Jeremy Hayward, who was is the, the top boss in the whole of the civil service there, you know, glowing quotes about this. What does it tell us about the culture? Well, I think it suggests that it wasn't under strict enough control. I mean, there's been an argument going on for really quite a long time since, I mean, it, you know, I'm old enough to remember Mrs Thatcher's government, and there was a lot of talk about bringing private sector thinking into uh, the civil service during Mrs. Thatcher's uh, period. You know, that ethos has continued in various ways, not completely continuously, uh, including some of the Labour period. And there is a, a, clearly a good case for civil servants having clear knowledge and experience in working uh, outside Whitehall. I mean, you, the closed culture of, of Whitehall is, a, is, is, is an, a different kind of undesirable thing. So, you know, there are, you know, this is not an unreasonable thing to be trying to, to, to do, but what you have to do and absolutely have to do is police it rigorously and enforce it effectively. And that's not happening. I think you nevertheless have in the Conservative Party a, a deeper sense that private sector good, public sector bad. And when you get to a prime minister such as Boris Johnson, who is not 
basically, uh, as, as Raphael Baer said in, in the paper this morning, not a man to lose sleep over lapses in probity, um, you know, this uh, becomes much more serious. Labour's going to force a Commons vote later, which they'll lose because the Conservatives will whip against it. But they're asking for this much more wide-ranging parliamentary cross-party inquiry led by MPs into the lobbying scandal and looking at broadly the whole system and overhauling it because, you know, in their words, they don't trust the Conservative government to mark their own homework. They have got, you know, the, the, the Tories have sent up a, an independent inquiry, but obviously they've they've appointed someone, a, you know, a very well-connected lawyer to look to look at it. What, what is Labour actually hoping for here? And, and should MPs even be marking this homework? It's, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one. I mean, select committees, you know, do exist to do this work. There are existing standing select committees, aren't there? Like the Public Administration Committee in particular, which is chaired by the Conservative Bernard Jenkin. And I think they have a session tomorrow with Lord Pickles. So I think uh, there are ways into this, but it's a, really a question of what the terms of reference are and how seriously the inquiries can develop at a parliamentary level. The bigger question that you asked about Labour, I mean, the answer to that, I think, is that Labour is extremely keen to be active on, uh, on on distinctive things at the moment, with not least because there's been pressure on Keir Starmer, but also because the elections are coming in three weeks' time. So it's really quite important that from Labour Party point of view, that it takes a distinctive and clear anti-conservative stand on this. Um, so, I mean, that's what, I mean, that's obviously what they're doing. They're doing it pretty well, I think. Uh, and uh, I think that, you know, we're going to hear a lot more of this over the next uh, two or three days before the Prince Philip funeral kind of obliterates everything else in the airwaves for 48 hours. Martin, how will some of Boris Johnson's cabinet feel about his decision to call an inquiry to really put the heat back in this story when, you know, it's it's a complicated story for sure. Guardian readers, I'm sure, understand every word of it. But, you know, perhaps something that doesn't have massive cut through, they may have thought. And, and now it really, really does shine the spotlight back on them. I think they'll feel pretty apprehensive, some of them. I mean, there have been a succession of questions asked in particular about uh, Robert Jenrick and Matt Hancock at various points in this process, uh, and Johnson himself, of course, uh, so that although they are not necessarily directly uh, implicated in in the referral that uh, Johnson has made, it keeps the issue alive. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, there will be this feeling that, you know, Johnson just get does what suits him and doesn't think about the party very much. And I think that is a that that connects to a, a, another issue relating to Johnson's uh, leadership of the Tory party more generally. But I think actually it's not going to cut through hugely yet to the public because actually I think the public's pretty cynical about these things in the first place. I think they think that, that they're all in it together and, you know, the 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 long shadow of the MPs' expenses story from more than a decade ago uh, is still there. And I think public uh, feeling towards politicians is pretty damn cynical at the moment. I want to move on to a story that you actually sent my way. A really fascinating report from a senior uh, former civil servant, uh, Philip Rycroft, who uh, was talking about the union. And he warned that the prime minister is really letting the union fall apart kind of by accident, just because of a lack of interest in Whitehall, a lack of consideration of of the devolved nations, and that you have had for the past year this spectacle of a prime minister standing up on 
in press conferences regularly and talking about new rules and those new rules essentially being for England alone. So you get used to this idea of a prime minister who speaks for England alone and, and a first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, who speaks for Scotland. And it permeates the culture. And is, and that is, there's going to need to be a massive effort if if this really is what the government intends to do to, to strengthen the union or, 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 you know, could see it disappear almost by accident. Um, what, what did you make of it? Uh, well, I think that report from Cambridge University uh, was extremely interesting because it kind of reminded us that Boris Johnson is a particularly egregious example of somebody who comes over as, and indeed is, uh, primarily concerned with England and not much involved in or doesn't think about, doesn't have the bandwidth to think about uh, what the report uh, calls the, the United Kingdom's more peripheral territories. And and this is a very widespread thing uh, in, in Whitehall. And I think the report, and there's another report from Oxford University uh, that came out uh, just uh, yesterday uh, in, a, in a rather similar vein. Uh, you know, these reports are just underscoring, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, that when devolution uh, started in 1997, it just got, it was very asymmetrical, but it also inculcated a kind of, oh, we don't need to worry about this because that's being looked after in Edinburgh or that's being looked after in Cardiff or Belfast mentality in Whitehall. And like maybe this is going to change a little bit quite soon because, for example, uh, Johnson has brought back a very interesting civil servant called Sue Gray, who is from Northern Ireland and has been in Northern Ireland. Uh, and she ha- is charged with uh, firing up this uh, kind of consciousness raising, if you like to put it like that, uh, at the centre. Um, and that could be effective. But my feeling is that this ship has sailed. So a UK government spokesman said in response to those reports that strengthening the United Kingdom is at the heart of everything we do. And we are working alongside the devolved administrations to establish new ways of regular, meaningful and effective cooperation so that we can continue to deliver for people right across the United Kingdom. Right. um, Before we go, UK politics said goodbye to a real titan this week, Baroness Shirley Williams, the former Labour minister, who, who then split the party, joined the SDP. And then encouraged the founding of the Liberal Democrats. She was a Liberal Democrat peer for a long time. She died at the age of, of 90. Um, Martin, you worked with her in a past life, didn't you? Well, worked with her slightly suggests that we were in the same uh, project together. <laughs> not the case. I was a journalist. She was a politician. I can remember her uh, as, as a Labour cabinet minister in, this, in, the, in the 1970s when I was getting into this trade. And she was an absolutely central figure uh, in the 1980s when for a period at least, uh, the gang of four, that was uh, herself and uh, Roy Jenkins, David Owen and uh, Bill Rogers, looked as though they might transform the nature of politics. They came very close in the 1983 general election uh, to, to, to doing that. Um, and Shirley was really, I think, the most important woman in British politics of that period, other than Margaret Thatcher. And she was a very kind person, also famously a very forgetful person, which could make you grind your teeth from time to time. She, if you if you arranged a lunch with Shirley, you had to make you had to recognise she might turn up because she'd forget about it. <laughs> she'd head in the wrong direction, which she famously did at the Guardian once when she was coming to for a session. Uh, there, but I think uh, you know a, a very notable uh, figure, very impressive uh, f- figure, and 
you know, you look at Britain in 2021 and whatever you may think about the SDP uh, from 40 years ago, I mean, Britain would be a very different and I think a rather better place today if she'd succeeded better than she did. She was a force, that's for sure. Um, we send our condolences, of course, to Shirley Williams and friends and, and family. Martin Kettle, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, it's great to be part of the Leeds United Mafia, Jess. <laughs> it certainly is. After the break, we look at what the recent violence in Northern Ireland tells us about the state of politics there, and Aubrey Allegretti tries to suss who will win that all-important by-election in Hartlepool. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, last week, riots broke out in loyalist areas in Northern Ireland. And there is a debate about why the groups of mainly young people decided to petrol bomb buses and cars, leading to police officers being hurt. Unlike elsewhere in Great Britain, Northern Ireland is not gearing up for local elections this May because the Assembly only reopened in January 2020, three years after the power-sharing executive in the region collapsed, although it will mark its centenary later this summer. And what we have now is a sort of toxic marriage between Sinn Féin, who keep banging the drum of United Ireland, and unionist parties like the DUP, who have watched their power in UK politics all but disappear since they decided to reject Theresa May's Brexit deal. Earlier this week, Ireland correspondent Rory Carroll spoke to the Northern Ireland Justice Minister and leader of the Alliance Party, Naomi Long. He started off by asking her about her thoughts on why young loyalists decided to take to the streets and riot. This isn't about some checks in the REC. For people from a unionist perspective and a loyalist perspective, this is about a sense of identity, about a sense of being part of the United Kingdom. And we warned back in 2016 that anything in a country as divided as ours, anything that interfered with people's sense of identity, sense of belonging, would be incredibly stressful um, in terms of the impact on the Good Friday Agreement, on the peace settlement and on community relations. And so it has proven. I think it was always going to end this way. But there was a sense of shock because of the level of political denial that that was the reality. Um, and because they were promised something quite different. And when young people were being interviewed last week and when, pe- when they were talking to journalists who were here in Northern Ireland, they were very clearly saying, look, I don't understand the protocol, but I understand my community is angry. We keep being told that Republicans get everything and the Sinn Féin are winning, and that doesn't seem fair. So I think that that gives some sense as to the underlying anger 
It doesn't excuse what happened. It doesn't fully explain all of the dynamics, but I think it is a large part of why people were on the streets last week. There have been reports of progress in talks over the protocol between the British government and the European Commission. Now, if they both sides came out tomorrow and said, we've completely sorted out the issues with the protocol, everyone on all sides are happy. I mean, let's imagine. Would the young people who threw petrol bombs last week really care? I think once unionists cast this as an issue about the constitutional question, the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, and saw it as a removal of Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom at some level, as a change in our sovereignty, then I think it becomes much more intractable a problem to resolve. And so I'm not entirely convinced that unionism more widely would be satisfied simply at this point with solutions, practical and pragmatic solutions. I think that's a mistake on behalf of unionism because I don't think the government is minded to scrap the protocol. There is too much at stake for the rest of the UK and I think that's just a reality. I also think it's a mistake because unionism had an opportunity to shape um, the kind of Brexit we were going to have when they had the balance of power in Westminster and huge amounts of influence, but they didn't use it well. Um, And so I think that young people in our communities remain very vulnerable, even if we can resolve the issues of the protocol. And that isn't a straightforward process either. Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, flew into Belfast a few days into the violence and held virtual meetings with you and other party leaders. Can you tell us more about those meetings and were you confident that he grasped the issues? Well, I think he does now. I'm not sure that he he did at the beginning. In fact, I'm really not sure that anyone in Westminster fully realised the seriousness of the situation. We were constantly dismissed as those who were fear-mongering, that was Project Fear, and that we were exaggerating um, the situation. I think it was more that not so much that people don't understand, but that nobody really cared because the prize was Brexit. And even going back before Boris's time, um, if you look at David Cameron, I mean, he made a, a choice. He made the choice to divide the country and unite his own party because he felt that that was the better option than trying to lead a divided party, but a united country. So I don't think that the issue is necessarily about understanding. I think it is about caring about the the consequences of the actions that are taken at Westminster in terms of the impact that they have here in Northern Ireland. Do you see any sign that the Democratic Unionist Party and their First Minister, Arlene Foster, are willing to maybe confront uh, their own base and try to lead them to a safer, more politically progressive place? The truth is that Brexit um, has created a huge tension within our society. It was a very delicately balanced ecosystem into which this huge wrecking ball has essentially arrived. And our whole ethos around the Good Friday Agreement, the whole basis on which Northern Ireland can function well, is for people to be able to be fully Irish and fully British for boundaries and barriers to become less and less important. And what has become hugely frustrating, I think, since Brexit, is the sense of friction at interfaces, friction between the British and Irish governments, who are the, the, the joint guarantors of the agreement, and also friction between the UK and the EU. 
But we're like the orphan child in all of this. Does it take young people to be burning buses and, and throwing stones before the UK government takes an interest in what's happening here in Northern Ireland and the implications of it? It seems so, and I, I think that's shameful. The DUP, I think, are finally recognising the impact of Brexit as it stands. They will want to dismiss it as the protocol and blame the rest of us rather than take responsibility for the fact that the protocol itself is a symptom of Brexit, not the cause of the problem. Meanwhile, Sinn Féin continues to push the idea that all of this is just proof of the ultimate direction of a united Ireland. Now, Sinn Féin and the DUP fundamentally don't see eye to eye, and yet they're stuck. You use the word toxic in what appears to outsiders as a toxic marriage at Stormont. I mean, are they capable of running the Assembly to the level people in Northern Ireland need them to? And is Stormont working as it should? I don't think the Assembly um, is functioning as it could be. I think we could do better. And I think that the constant reversal into, if you like, playing to the gallery in your own community um, in what is a very divided society can be incredibly dangerous. Too often we end up regressing into our trenches and we inevitably end up with the same arguments just played out over different issues. Well, speaking of trenches, is there a, a frustration among voters about just how binary politics has become in Northern Ireland, the, the this endless orange-green division? I think people are weary of it. I think people are exhausted by it. They see it played out in, in small ways, in petty ways, but also in fairly significant ways. So, for example, even around COVID, there were huge sectarian tensions around how COVID would be managed, whether we would align with London or Dublin. Now, to, to be in that situation, to see sectarianism actually tripping up government from being able to do the things that business needs us to do, that communities need us to do, exposes just how difficult this is. But equally, people at times are afraid because running up to elections, there is always a huge amount of pressure put on people um, to believe that if you don't vote for a particular party, the DUP or Sinn Féin or whoever it might be, that you will end up letting the other succeed. And in reality, that drives a lot of people back into those trenches at elections. Northern Ireland is soon going to celebrate or commemorate its centenary. And we've seen the Good Friday Agreement was just 23 years old last week. But, you know, peace still continues to feel like a, a fragile concept in Northern Ireland. I mean, is it fair to ask, is, is Northern Ireland a failed state? I think it's fair to ask the question. Um, but I think it's important to recognise that for those of us who were born long after partition, for those of us who have grown up in Northern Ireland, even people like myself, um, who were born in the 1970s and, and grew up with the Troubles as our backdrop. It's not good enough to simply dismiss Northern Ireland as though it's an aberration and it doesn't matter. It's our home. I think politics in Northern Ireland um, has never shown the kind of inclusive and generous leadership that's needed to manage a country which was always deeply divided. I see myself as both British and Irish, so I don't have that internal conflict as to which I am. I'm both and fully both. But I'm not at home when I'm in Dublin. I'm not at home when I'm in London. But I am at home when I'm in Belfast and it is uniquely Northern Ireland. I think what we need to find is 
a new kind of leadership for the future because whatever our future in these islands it is together um we're not we're not going to go floating off into the atlantic separate from each other we're tied together by 800 years of history for good or for bad and we need to find a way of living together and i think that requires more than just the people of northern ireland to be engaged in that process rory carroll speaking to naomi long there for anyone wanting to know more about what's behind last week's riots in northern ireland Rory spoke with Anushka Stana for Tuesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus. So search for that wherever you get your podcasts. Now, last week, my colleagues Raphael Baer and Gabby Hinsliff spoke about the various challenges facing Labour leader Keir Starmer over the next few months. One such obstacle to overcome is the Hartlepool by-election taking place at the start of May. Starmer will be hoping that Labour candidate Dr Paul Williams can hold on to the seat they've held since 1964, but there are signs that this could be the Conservatives' best chance to flip this industrial town blue. So who are the voters that the Tories should be focusing on? And what awaits Labour if disaster strikes at the ballot box in Hartlepool on May 6th? The Guardian's political correspondent Aubrey Allegretti put this and other questions to Will Tanner of the Conservative think tank Onward and Lord Peter Mandelson, the former MP for Hartlepool. Will and Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Peter, why don't we start with you first of all? Uh, you've been up to Hartlepool twice already, you said, and you've warned your own party and others that Hartlepool isn't a place to be taken for granted. This isn't the first time this town's seen a by-election, so what unique challenges will Labour and the Conservatives be facing this time, do you think? I think the the challenge is for both main parties is that Hartlepool people feel rather let down by politics. Um, I mean, inevitably, they feel particularly let down uh, by the party that's been in government for the last 10 years. You know, the government came in with a lot of promises. They had the ability to make lives better. But instead, they've taken away from the town rather than putting more into the town. I mean, many people in Hartlepool just feel that, you know, whilst Conservative Party attention to the Tees Valley area has increased, you've seen investment in the area sort of anywhere but in Hartlepool. And that's generated a lot of disappointment and some resentment. So it sounds like you're focusing on the subjects of the police, public services and blue-collar jobs. Those are all things the Conservatives have tried to sort of become the new champions of. Do you think that they will be successful in persuading voters that those are issues that Boris Johnson understands and wants to prioritise? Uh, they will do their best. I don't think they're putting up the best possible candidate uh, to do that job for them. They've chosen a, a, a farmer from Yorkshire. But nor can the Labour Party be complacent. I mean, in the 2019 general election, there was a 37-odd percent Labour share of the vote. I think it was the fourth lowest share of any Labour-held seat uh, in the country, and the combined Conservative and Brexit party vote eclipsed Labour's in 2019. And this was partly because of Brexit, partly because of Jeremy Corbyn's uh, leadership, which frankly repulsed uh, very many Labour voters in, in Hartlepool. And there were mistakes made by Labour locally. And if they're elected, they'll certainly sweep clean in the civic centre. I mean, they'll start raising standards again in Hartlepool's town council, uh, where they should be and where they were previously. 
um, after what has been a very difficult 10 years uh, for the town. Will, you're obviously somebody who's been investigating the data a little bit. So we've obviously had some snap polling on Hartlepool, courtesy of the Communication Workers Union and Servation. That's put the Conservatives out in front by around 7%. So how reliable does that seem to you? And what are some of the difficulties when it comes to trying to do polling in the run-up to a by-election? Yes, you're right. We've had one snap poll um, from Servation and CWU. And I personally would take the results of that poll with a slight pinch of salt. It was a very small sample uh, poll. Um, If you look at some of the vote recall Uh, You had a very small number of people saying they voted for the Brexit party, far fewer than uh, than actually did last time. So I would I would treat that with some degree of caution. But I think it does demonstrate the extent to which this seat has been moving towards the Conservatives for some time and that it will probably be closer this time than it has been uh, in a long time. Uh, So if you look at the last election, the Labour vote share was the second lowest since the seat was created in 1974. The Conservatives have been gradually increasing their vote share from about 3,000 votes in 2004 uh, to about 14,000 votes uh, in 2017. So there's been a, a kind of gradual increase of the Conservative vote share. And I think what we uh, what we're really seeing is a rotation of the electorate, as we saw at the last election with the falling of the Red Wall, where some of these Uh, seats like Hartlepool are becoming much more likely because of their demographics to vote Conservative. But I suppose Hartlepool has seen some sort of close calls before when it comes to the the idea whether they'll flip red to blue. Do you think that this time it's a sort of inevitability that it will fall away, that it will inevitably Labour's majority will get smaller? Or could we actually just see this cycle sort of continue of continually close runs for, for Labour and the Conservatives? I definitely don't think it's inevitable that this seat will vote Conservative this time around. Um, I think, as Peter says, neither of the main parties can take the seat for granted. And there are a number of big unknowns in Hartlepool, which um, we just simply don't really, uh, we don't know whether or not uh, these things will pan out. So if there's low turnout amongst Labour voters uh, and the Labour vote, vote doesn't get out, then I think that could be advantageous for the Conservative Party. Equally, if uh, there is a large protest or, or kind of third party vote, as there was in 2019, that will be advantageous for Labour because their vote's much more likely to hold up, I think, in, in that scenario. I don't think it's it's worth speculating actually at this point, but I think the Conservatives and certainly the Conservatives I think I speak to think they're in for a shout. Peter, let's pick up a little bit more on that. Before we get into what Labour needs to be doing to hold on to the seat next month, do you want to explain to us just how much influence you think the Brexit party had on the result in Hartlepool in 2019 and before that in 2015 with UKIP? What do we think about the idea of this third party and how much of a, an influence it could have this time? Well, it's a sizable protest vote. There is also another Conservative standing, uh, Ralph Wall Jackson, Uh, He's a Conservative. In his case, unlike the Conservative Party candidate, he has strong links to the town because his ancestor, also named Ralph Ward Jackson, founded the town. So there are alternatives if they they don't want to vote either Labour or Conservative. But overwhelmingly, people will vote uh, for the two main parties. I think townspeople like the fact that Labour is represented by a local doctor, somebody who's been working locally for the last year in the COVID clinic uh, at the town's uh, hospital. But at the same time for Labour, 
others will feel quite unforgiving <laughs> towards the party given the recent uh, history. Uh, and they'll want to know that Labour's problems are not just in remission, uh, but they're permanently uh, cured under Keir Starmer. They want convincing, and they're waiting for that uh, to be made clear. Peter, you obviously said there that Labour's on the road to recovery. However, Keir Starmer has had a sort of challenging anniversary since taking the leadership because obviously he saw a very big rise in his support in the polls in the immediate aftermath, and that's kind of dipped away as the uh, as support for the Conservatives and the government has risen, partly attributed to the sort of vaccine boost. How much of a fight then do you think this is personally for Keir Starmer? And if the seat does away, fall away under Labour, then how much difficulty will he be in? He's still a bit of an unknown to, to many people, certainly in the town, as far as I've encountered it. They like the fact, when they hear it, that his father was a toolmaker who worked in a factory, and the fact that Keir's mother was a nurse before being taken over by illness herself. And they certainly like the fact that he was the director of public prosecutions who chased and prosecuted criminals uh, uh, and terrorists, while Boris Johnson's background is, a, is as a journalist, uh, from which he was fired twice for, for lying. So w- when they sort of focus on these things, when they get the information... I think their appreciation of what's on offer from uh, Starmer and the contrast with Johnson uh, will become clearer. But you've got to get, you know, free of the COVID and the pandemic uh, before politics, you know, becomes normal in that way, and people are, are are concentrating instead on the choice between the parties and between the leaders. Now, Will, I remember at the last election, your research on the type of voter the Conservatives should be targeting, who was dubbed the Workington Man, that came from Onward's recommendation that Boris Johnson should be focusing on attracting voters who were older, white, non-graduate men from areas in the north of England with these strong rugby league traditions that tend to vote Labour. That advice looks, with hindsight, to have been pretty sage. So if CCHQ were telling you to look into that crystal ball again now, who are the kind of voters you think the Tories need to win over to finally flip Hartlepool? Well, the thing about Hartlepool is that it shares many of the characteristics as those original Red Wall seats. It actually wasn't one of the original seats that we identified within the Red Wall. It wasn't one of the seats we predicted would fall to the Conservatives at the last election. But if you look at its demographics, it is uh, older, typically, uh, 25% of the population is over 65 compared to about 22% for the rest of the country. Uh, it is much less likely, or people there are much less likely to have a degree um, to have gone to university, about 19% of people compared to 33% in the, in the rest of the country. And it overwhelmingly voted to leave in 2016, about 69.5% voted to leave in 2016. So um, those characteristics are increasingly uh, associated with conservative voting patterns and they were associated with the conservatives underperforming in a variety of seats before the last election that then flipped so i think as i say some of the the, the kind of foundations of seats like hartlepool are increasingly looking conservative in their kind of attributes the question is whether or not that rotation of the electorate has 
has spun fast enough to turn it this time around. I suspect in years to come, whether it happens this time or not, Hartlepool will become increasingly conservative in its voting patterns, whereas metropolitan seats in uh, the centre of Manchester or, or Liverpool or London, etc., will become increasingly Labour. And that's, that's a shifting of the electorate, the twisting of the kaleidoscope that we've been seeing over the last three or four elections that came to pass in a big, visible way at the last election, but actually has been happening for some time. And we obviously can't ignore the context that this by-election is happening within the context of coronavirus. There's obviously no chance we're going to be clear of that by next month when the election takes place. So, Will, what sort of factors in the sort of national polling, the national images of what politicians, Kistama and Boris Johnson are doing, will play into how the town perhaps votes next month? Well, I think the most important thing for coronavirus is... um, is that voters have been willing to give governments much more benefit of the doubt when it comes to handling the pandemic than I think most people understood at the beginning of this crisis. So if you look across Western governments, voters are willing to say that governments will make mistakes as long as they admit them, um, change course uh, and, and, and rectify some of those mistakes. They're willing to stick with the government. And you've seen that in this country over the course of the last three or four months, especially as the vaccine rollout has has happened um, very successfully. So I think um, voters will largely be buoyed by the success of the vaccine programme. They'll be looking for the government to not make mistakes as they reopen the country. As we know, voters are uh, are actually much more sceptical of wholesale reopening than perhaps some commentators. Uh, And they'll be looking to ensure that rates stay relatively low and that we don't see a spike in infections uh, following the reopening. I think all of those factors are going to play a role, but I suspect the vaccine programme will be the thing that the government points to and that voters probably bring up most on the doorstep as one of the things that is driving their opinions about government performance at the moment. But I think it is interesting, uh, Will has alluded to this, that in a sense, both main parties are trying to sort of search out the political terrain in order to gain some advantage and standing again right across the country, including in the north of the country. Both of the main parties are looking for ideas. At the moment, the Tories are offering a mixture of sort of pork barrel politics masquerading as levelling up, global Britain opportunities, of course, Uh, and the sort of cultural wars based on race and gender and national identity, Labour at the same time is searching for definition. Now, both parties, in a sense, are looking, searching across the political landscape and terrain for ideas, for definition uh, that would appeal uh, to voters uh, across the country, but including in seats like Hartlepool, where you've always sort of felt it was Labour, Uh, but where, yes, it is more marginal and therefore the seat is up for grabs in this by-election. That was The Guardian's Aubrey Allegretti speaking with Peter Mandelson and Will Tanner. And that is all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland speaks to Alexis Grenell about the general madness of politics in New York. Make sure to look out for that in the Politics Weekly feed wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Martin Kettle, Rory Carroll... Aubrey Allegretti, Naomi Long, Peter Mandelson and Will Tanner. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks so much as always for listening.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.